host, Leah Sarah-Pierre, and welcome to my podcast, Pierre Med. I'm a Canadian medical student, human rights, global health, and social justice advocate, as well as just an ordinary human being. As of March 24th, 2021, the PMED podcast is an initiative affiliated with the PMED Foundation, an organization started and inspired by the very beginnings of these conversations. PMED's mission is serving humanity, connecting people, stories, and places. It is a platform that gives a voice to the voiceless, an ear to the helpless, and seeks to empower youth, physicians, and leaders far and wide. On today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking to the South Asian Health Research Hub, a program of research for the South Asian community by the South Asian community. They value the understanding of the social determinants of South Asian health, design health promotion programs that produce positive change, and all their work is guided by the principles of the socio-ecological framework, intersectionality, community-based participatory research, and cultural safety. Why is it that research lacks ethnicity and race-based data? What role does the community have in health research? How can we, as youth, address health issues affecting South Asian populations? And how can we ensure, first and foremost, an equity-focused lens? If you've answered yes to any of those questions, listen as I dive into discussion with the South Asian Health Research Hub and how they are tackling this very problem. Dr. Ananya Tina Banerjee is Assistant Professor at the School of Population and Global Health at McGill University and the Dalla Lana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. She is the founder of the South Asian Health Research Hub, a unique program of interdisciplinary research that embeds a strong emphasis on community-based participatory research, which is rooted in collaboration and partnerships. The current research questions she is pursuing are community-defined problems in the context of the social determinants of diabetes and health equity, funded by the Social Science and Humanities Research Council. Engaging with South Asian community partners, she examines epidemiologic trends conducts qualitative research, designs evidence-based health programs, and produces compelling digital stories that integrate multimedia materials, including photos, participant voices, drawings, and music to inform policy implementation. She serves as a national consultant editor, Social Determinants of Health, for the Canadian Journal of Diabetes. Shadipta Islam holds a Master of Public Health from the Dalai Lana School of Public Health with a dual specialization in global health and community development. Her personal and professional interests lie at the intersection of health, social justice, and policy. She is particularly passionate about how race and racialization interact with the social determinants of health to create stark health disparities across communities and how policies can shape healthy social and built environments. 
Shuddy has worked at the City of Toronto conducting research to assess the socio-political landscape of the Ontario Works Program and at Youth Research and Evaluation Exchange, providing consultations to Ontario's grassroots youth sector on developing and conducting evaluations. Currently, Shuddy works at the Wellesley Institute as a researcher, where she is examining the mental health impacts of community violence on urban youth in partnership with the City of Toronto. Additionally, as a member of the South Asian Health Research Hub, she conducts qualitative diabetes research among South Asian youth using community-based participatory research and arts-based knowledge translation alongside a network of researchers, health professionals, and academics. Amina Khan is a Master of Public Health graduate from the Dalalana School of Public Health. Her experiences in health promotion span from grassroots to governments. Amina's research interests lie in youth and young adult health, community development, public policy, as well as the South Asian community. She holds a strong passion for the arts and finding ways to merge this with health. She currently works as a policy analyst at the Public Health Agency of Canada's Renewal Hub. Welcome to the PMED podcast. Today I have the pleasure of speaking to the South Asian Health Research Hub. Thanks for having us, Leah. What is the South Asian Health Research Hub? What inspired its creation? I am the founder of the South Asian Health Research Hub, and uh, this hub was really uh, created during my time at the Dalai Lama School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Um, I was very fortunate enough to have an incredible group of South Asian public health students, uh, such as Amina and Shudi, and among others, um, who were very quite motivated and inspired uh, to help our communities and to really uh, look towards changing uh, the narratives of why South Asians, you know, have a higher risk for chronic disease and mental health diseases. And I think collectively, we all noticed that a lot of the research that was being done um, was actually mainly done by non-South Asian uh, researchers. And it was really exciting for myself and to have such an incredible, talented group of South Asian students to really come together and create the hub and really start examining and answering research questions that were important to us as being part of the South Asian diaspora and having lived experiences, watching our relatives um, struggle with chronic disease such as diabetes and heart disease. And most importantly, to start working with different community partners and for myself personally, giving the South Asian public health students uh, the lead to run many of the research projects, but uh, to not really just take an academic lens and take a methods lens, but to really also take an arts-based approach uh, to the work that we're doing. So it can be appealing uh, to a large audience and particularly to the larger South Asian community. For the community, by the community, what does this mean and and why did this particular statement or phrase stand out? It was really important for me, especially growing up and not having professors or researchers who look like me and really trying to navigate and solve their 
the complexities of health issues that we experience. And so I wanted to really leverage on my position as, you know, being one of the very few South Asian professors and, and really to build a community and work with South Asian communities, perhaps who are not academics, you know, give our South Asian public health students opportunities to, do, to be part of research that reflects their lives. I, that was extremely important to me. And that's why the South Asian Health Research Hub is actually one of the very few research programs in Canada that is being led, you know, by South Asian health academics and professionals and working closely with grassroots on South Asian communities, uh, agencies, and most importantly, you know, really bringing that social determinants of health lens into our work and, you know, really working towards health equity and understanding that, you know, South Asians as a community, we are very vulnerable to chronic disease, mental health disease as a result of, you know, inequities inequities we experience because we are socially uh, disadvantaged, which is tied to our migration history. Mm -hmm. And do you feel that maybe South Asian health and research has been largely, largely neglected from medicine and the mainstream media's focus? It hasn't been largely neglected. I think there has been a lot of attention and emphasis on South Asian health disparities. I think the problem was that often it was being led by, you know, people who weren't part of the South Asian community. Mm -hmm. And also there was a lot of blame and shame on, you know, our communities, for example, for having diabetes and, you know, not really focusing on as I said, the social determinants of health piece and understanding that, you know, our risk, you know, for health issues is largely attributed to social factors and not simply due to our genetics, our, our culture. And really, I think this was the importance of the South Asian Health Research Hub is to really bring this strong narrative of the importance of social inequalities that South Asians experience often, which drives um, higher rates of diabetes and cardiovascular disease and mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And so what are some health disparities faced by South Asians as opposed to say other ethnicities in, in Canada? I think what you're asking, it's, it's such a loaded question because when we're thinking about the types of health disparities, when we talk about the South Asian community, we need to also put that into the whole context of their lived experiences, their migration, their migration histories, their family histories, colonization, I think all of that plays an important role. And I think even thinking about, you know, going back to the sort of, I guess, the colonial systems and structures that often set up the precedence for migration to happen and for immigration to happen. What we're seeing is that for a lot of the South Asian communities that are coming here as immigrants, they find themselves in these positions where they're in precarious work um, they're living in neighborhoods that, you know, don't have the same sort of social assets because they're not being invested in in the same way. So there's a differential sort of, um, there are these differential assets that are available in terms of, are your neighborhoods livable? Are you able to 
you know, walk around because there's sufficient green space? Is it a safe neighborhood? Do you feel comfortable with your children walking around by themselves or with a couple of friends? So, you know, thinking about the way your built environment is designed and then coupling that with, with the experiences of, you know, being in a precarious job, thinking about, you know, I have two or three kids. I just got to this country. I am a trained engineer and I I'm not able to get a job in my field because my credentials are not being recognized in Canada and the mm -hmm. Canadian system. And so that pressure to just take on a job that is often precarious, that is often, you know, pretty much selectively is essentially taken up by folks that, you know, aren't getting their credentials recognized and that are immigrating to this country, you know, being put in that position where they have to work without sick days, where they might have to pull those double shifts, all of those elements really go in and sort of intersect with each other to create a health disparity. And this is without even, you know, starting to talk about the disparities of being a racialized person and the sort of preferential experiences somebody, somebody might face because of that. And so when I say that, I'm talking about, you know, preferential treatment at hospitals, preferential treatment at schools. And so I think this is, and it's not a phenomenon that's specifically, you know, limited to necessarily the South Asian community. I think there's a lot of um, I guess, parallels with a lot of immigrant and racialized communities that we see in Canada and other places in North America as well. Um, but I think these are the pieces that sort of, you know, they interplay to, together to create sort of a, a social environment around a, a person where you're just not living your healthiest life and you don't really have the option to live that healthy life. So you're really being systemically and systematically forced into an environment that just isn't conducive to good living. Mm -hmm. I, I definitely agree with 100% with of what you said, Shuri, that it takes a lot of the different uh, factors and, and it's pretty complex into how these disparities are evident in our Canadian healthcare system and in our, our current society. But what role does stigma, taboo and shame have on the health and well-being of South Asian communities? Yeah, Leah, I think every culture can relate to the fact that there's, you know, always a dominant narrative about them. Um, I think there's in the South Asian culture, like a lot of stigma, taboo and shame across many different realms, but that definitely strongly exists when it comes to our health. Um, and kind of outside of our circle, there's a lot of different beliefs that people have about South Asians and what their health is kind of shaped by. And so some of those really common stereotypes is, you know, we're unhealthy because we don't exercise or unhealthy because our food is too oily. We only eat fried things. We eat too many sweets. Mm -hmm. um, you commonly see that like in the news amongst um, people and even inside of our community ourselves, I feel like we tend to just perpetuate those same narratives. Um, and I know growing up for me, like I was, you know, born and raised in, in Canada, not surrounded by a lot of, you know, my South Asian family members or family friends. And I definitely fed into that narrative growing up too, that this is why our families, you know, whether they're back home or why South Asians here are unhealthy. Um, but it becomes really scary and like dangerous when that becomes the norm. Um, and, you know, we start to see that amongst our own people and people in positions of powers like South Asian healthcare providers, for example. Um, 
and I think I think strongly it's you know the South Asian culture and South Asian values that are often blamed as like the pillars for why uh, these health concerns arise. So the fact that you know we have this really big sense of community and family and um, you know eating a, a table full of food is often the picture that comes to mind. But mm -hmm instead of that being something that's like celebrated and, and positive, because there is a lot of positive things about that, it becomes, you know, this, uh, this way to blame ourselves and, and the community. Um, and then that also kind of, you know, things that Shudi and Ananya have already touched on, that then takes away from those broader social factors that, like the socioeconomic factors, the structural factors that are the main um, barriers as to why we can't have good health. Mm -hmm. Definitely, and and what role does maybe education have in in demystifying or or removing these these stigmas or stereotypes or myths, for example? I can start off um, answering this one, and it's really great that you asked this question because. I think a big part of why there is so much stigma when it when we think about South Asian culture, South Asian food in particular, I think a big part of understanding our health is understanding that what we know about health has, you know, generally been deduced by doing research and by doing studies that have historically excluded South Asian populations, as mm -hmm. well as other racialized communities. So, you know, we have this whole history and legacy of understanding what a healthy lifestyle is and what healthy really means, but it never took into account that there are, you know, folks that are maybe not white or there are folks that might not be men. And so I think a lot of what we understand about health Ha, you know, takes that lens. And so when you're thinking about our healthcare practitioners, our health promoters, public health researchers, other health researchers, these are the things that they've come to know. And I think there is just a lack of understanding for anything that kind of deviates from what that picture of health looks like. So, mm -hmm. you know, we can say that, you know, get your veggies in, get your fruits in, that's healthy. But what, what does it mean when the vegetables you're eating look different? And what does it mean when the fruit you're eating looks different and the way you cook it looks different? And I think that kind of lack of awareness and lack of knowledge on, you know, culturally safe or culturally appropriate, culturally relevant, however you want to categorize that, um, what health looks like when you're taking that lens. And I think this really goes back to some of our earlier discussions about, you know, what does it mean to do work that's by the community, you know, for the community. It, I think a big part of having us, you know, working together as South Asians for the South Asian community, really the lived experience piece really plays into that. And it's kind of that internalized knowledge that you have just because you grow up with that knowledge, you grow up with that cultural brokerage. And I think that plays such an important role because, you know, you need to be able to bring that dialogue in and you, you need to be able to 
engage communities in discussion, but also ensure that the discussions that are happening, the advocacy that is happening is reaching, you know, policymakers, is reaching health professionals, is reaching folks out here who are, you know, impacting our health on the day-to-day -day basis. And so I think the educational piece of it is, you know, exceptionally important and it plays one of the strongest roles. And that's why community-based research is so important because a lot of the knowledge that we need to get out through, the, through this educational process, it needs to come from the community and it needs to come from their voices. Mm -hmm. I, I definitely agree with you, Shidi, on, on everything you've, you've stated, and especially going back to how the South Asian Health Research Hub really highlights and empowers voices within the community, the South Asian community, to play a part in, and have a role in, in research that is, is being influenced in, to guidelines and, and the ways that future narratives and research will guide uh, policymaking and decisions that impact South Asian communities. So then my next question you kind of touched on, but it was how do we push for health equity then in, in our South Asian communities in, in Canada? Um, you know, creating that research is what ultimately creates the understanding and then can inform things like programs and policies. Um, but we also need to be doing the right sort of research. Like there's enough research out there saying that South Asians have like X, Y, and Z chronic condition, but there isn't enough out there explaining the root causes of those problems that are looking beyond sort of individual behaviors and their lifestyles. And so really taking that approach and kind of understanding people's context and understanding the systems that they live in is so important. And also just acknowledging the fact that the South Asian community is so diverse, like it's such a large population, it's such a large you know, subcontinent that we're looking at as well as other parts of the world where people identify as South Asian. Um, and that means that we all come from like a really unique place and we all have you know, nuances and differences and those differences ultimately can impact or they do impact the way that you know our health and well-being is um, and so fundamentally when you're not able to understand those differences that exist then you're not really able to address health inequities properly and those inequities can you know as we see those inequities can just become larger and those gaps can become bigger over time um, and kind of you know, to, to put that into example, like looking at South Asians in the GTA, we have certain pockets where there's a lot of South Asians being represented, um, whether that's in, you know, the Peel region with Brampton, Mississauga, um, Caledon, or, you know, pockets of Scarborough or in Toronto. Um, there's many differences that even exist in terms of languages, but also things like education and literacy. And so, when we have approaches to even managing health, um, people's health outcomes, we need the right tools, we need the right resources, like resources that are in different languages or resources that take into consideration people's literacy levels. Mm -hmm. And I think this greater awareness and just being mindful overall of, of how diverse the South Asian community is, 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 a, is a great start to, to ensuring that we're able to tackle the health inequities that exist within our South Asian communities in, in Canada. 
And so has COVID-19 affected the work of the organization or has it maybe inspired more determination to assist communities with health promotion and awareness? I can take this on. Um, so I've had the honor of really playing a strong role in uh, doing a lot of media advocacy work. And I think because of the work that we're doing as a hub, you know, really pushing for health equity, really, you know, acknowledging these structural barriers that, you know, South Asian communities experience and are, you know, largely attributed to the disparities that you know, they continue to exist. And I think, you know, when the pandemic started, I know myself and many of us who, you know, are part of the health research hub knew right off that, that South Asians would become one of the most vulnerable communities um, for COVID-19 and also being left behind uh, in the vaccination rollout. And so, in my role in the last few months, really, you know, working, you know, with the media and having the opportunity to have a little bit of influence, you know, with um, NASI, um, we started to see that, you know, um, knowing that Black communities and Indigenous communities were also quite vulnerable to, uh, during this pandemic, that the data, particularly from Toronto Public Health, you know, had clearly mapped out that, you know, South Asians, you know, who are living in neighborhoods, you know, hardest hit by COVID-19. And, you know, Amina mentioned, you know, there are large segments of South Asians living in Northwest neighborhoods, you know, South Scarborough, uh, Rexdale, at Thorncliffe Park, you know, just to name a few neighborhoods, um, you know, who were so vulnerable to COVID-19 because, you know, they had the biggest social and economic disadvantages uh, in their communities. And what we started to really see that, you know, South Asians, you know, who are living in these really hard hit neighborhoods, you know, were typically low income, working in transportation, warehousing, manufacturing, we know Amazon employs a large number of low-income South Asians living in the Peel region. We knew a lot of South Asians also lived in neighborhoods where, you know, they had to travel on crowded bus routes in order to go get back and to work. Uh, many South Asians live in five-plus story buildings, what we call aging towers, where the ventilation is really poor, and therefore their risk of COVID uh, even gets higher. Um, also, a lot of South Asians live in neighborhoods, and you know, Peel has clearly shown that they have less access to physicians and access to primary care and family doctors, and then coupled with having diabetes, you know, experiencing an epidemic in itself for several decades and now having to be faced uh, being most vulnerable during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think this narrative is something that, you know, we were able to strongly bring out along with many other, you know, incredible advocates, like such as Nahid Dasani, um, really, you know, calling for change, you know, for South Asian immigrants living in these neighborhoods who are so disadvantaged. And, you know, we've had the privilege to also really advocate for the need, for example, of paid sick days and making sure there's health benefits, um, you know, that they 
are unionized in their workplaces. And we know these all make a huge factor in you know, one's quality of life, um, but the opportunity to also take care of themselves. And I think this is a narrative that has come up more strongly during the pandemic and we've been really privileged um, to be part of this narrative. I think also wanted to mention that, you know, a lot of us have been also starting to advocate that in order to ensure the South Asians, you know, are not going to be falling behind the vaccine rollout is that we need to start working with the communities, um, you know, in a way that it is culturally responsive. And I think now there's been a great push to really work with trusted messengers, including community organizers, religious leaders um, in the South Asian communities to provide vaccine education and to help make vaccine appointments. And so it's been really great to see, for example, Thorn Cliff Park, you know, who has a large South Asian Muslim community are actually being prioritized for vaccination. And there are more pop-up clinics taking place. A lot of these pop-up clinics are being driven by mosques in the community. And we've seen that, you know, the response has been incredible from South Asians, um, particularly those, you know, who are our essential workers and most vulnerable to COVID-19 and can't afford to stay home when we're ordered to stay, when we're ordered to be home by our province. Um, and so we're starting to see these more easily accessible and trusted points of access to the vaccine, um, such as community centers, faith-based organizations um, that are being run by credible and trustworthy South Asian community-based organizations. And um, I'm really hoping that this momentum will continue as you know, we start to receive more vaccinations in the coming weeks and months and really, ensure that South Asian communities are really working towards, um, you know, not being vulnerable uh, in the pandemic, but understanding as South Asian communities, who are most, a lot of the more essential workers and so vulnerable, will be ultimately able to protect their families at home and, you know, their neighborhoods and in, you know, the general community and society. Mm -hmm. And so, Anania, you've, you've definitely highlighted how during the COVID-19 pandemic, the South Asian Health Research Hub has really been able to shine a light on the important disparities, the different types of ways that communities have been affected. Um, but so why is the work the organization does so important? I think this, it's important, and I mean, Ashita, please feel free to jump in, um, you know, just as your experience as a public health student and now a public health um, professional. I mean, I know for myself, like the South Asian Health Research Hub has been very central towards my own research agenda. And I think, you know, for all of us here, you know, we are children of immigrant parents um, or have migrated ourselves here. and. You know, I know for me personally, my parents had always reminded me, you know, if I'm going to do research, if I'm going to take the platform as a professor or as a public health professional, is to make sure I don't neglect our communities who continue to unfortunately be neglected, right, for decades mm -hmm. now. And I think now that, 
so many of us are in the second and third generation of the South Asian diaspora. And, you know, we are having opportunities to be in positions of power and to really leverage on, you know, the power that we have and to use it constructively to make sure that, you know, we are working towards social change, you know, particularly understanding that as South Asians, we are so diverse, you know, not just respect to culture and religion and what region we're from, but also we're so diverse in how socially and economically advantaged we are. And so for me, I, I always reflect on my privilege as a, as a second generation South Asian immigrant, um, you know, to really work and ensure that, you know, members of our community who are falling behind, um, that we're working alongside with them, we're advocating with them um, to make sure that, you know, they are fully able to thrive and, and live in our society with dignity and much um, respect. And I think for all of us who are part of the South Asian Health Research Hub, again, we have those lived experiences of mm -hmm. hearing our parents' stories of struggling when they immigrated and, you know, or our own struggles coming to this country. And, you know, for many of us are at a point where you know, as I said, we are privileged, we have our background, we have our education, we have our professional experience, our networks, and now more than ever, we're leveraging on this to make sure that we amplify the voices of our communities who continue to be uh, left uh, behind. Yeah, I think it's, you know, a part of understanding why this work is important. You know, partially, it's going to be a differential experience for each person. Um, and I can't speak for everyone, but I think for my end, and I think one of the reasons I really wanted to be a part of this team and do the work that was being done is because as a public health researcher, it was always so, you know, almost frustrating really to see how research is being done, especially with racialized communities and especially with South Asian communities, um, you know, being South Asian, wanting to do South Asian research was something that had always been an interest of mine. And I think, you know, being like having the opportunity to be part of research that is always looking to take the best approach it can when it does its research was so important for me. Um, because we're not just thinking about what we want to tell the world, but we're also thinking about what we want the world, you know, who we want to engage and how we want to treat the folks that we work with. Um, and we really always wanted to be mindful of wanting to engage the community so that they had autonomy, so that they had their voices heard, so that they had say into what they were doing. Um, and I think that part was really, really important to me so that, you know, as someone who's interested in wanting to advance health equity, wanting to advance social justice, you can't do that if your research or your research method doesn't, you know, reflect those values. And so being able to be part of a research initiative that is really trying to take that anti-oppressive lens, is really trying to work towards a framework that you know, has a lot of bi-directional participation was super, super important to me. And I think it's a super important part of research in general. We don't see that happening often. What tends to be more common is researchers parachuting into a community, 
using the community resources, the community voices for, you know, their own benefit, their own knowledge, um, and, you know, really benefiting from that process and then leaving. And the benefit that the community gets out of it is often minimal because there's no tie back from that research. Mm -hmm. There's often not a lot of people coming back and saying, hey, this is what we found. This is what we did. Um, this is what you folks have said to us. Now let's do something about it. Whereas I think with the research that I'm always really mindful of wanting to be a part of, will do that. And you know that piece of keeping that community engaged consistently and um, you know, being there to have them be a part of the whole process is so important to me. And I think that's what really stood out um, in terms of the organization's work and, and the projects that are taken on. And so I wanted to ask, what are some projects that are being currently led by the South Asian Health Research Hub? Well, currently there are a few projects going on at the South Asian Health Research Hub. Um, we have the South Asian Health and Diabetes Awareness Program. We also have a large community-based study understanding why diabetes is so high in uh, the Tamil communities uh, who migrated from Sri Lanka uh, in Ontario. And so our goal is to really, from both of these projects is, you know, to bring a strong narrative and to change the discourse as we talked about, about why South Asians experience health disparities and really, you know, move away from, you know, again, blaming and shaming our communities, you know, not just focusing on our culture or behaviors, you know, for example, you know, focusing on our foods, but rather talking about food insecurity, you know, not focusing on, the lack of physical activity in our communities because it's not part of culture, but thinking about the built environments, thinking about gender and how that plays a role in accessing a physical uh, activity opportunities. And so we've luckily had a lot of interest uh, generated in our work and people are starting to really appreciate, particularly those who are from our communities, um, that, you know, we no longer are blaming ourselves and, the, and our communities, you know, for our higher rates of diabetes and, and being more aware and cognizant of these, you know, social and economic and even political forces that really shape our risk um, for, you know, having chronic disease and mental health uh, conditions. And so focusing on the South Asian Adolescent Diabetes Awareness Program, this program really evolved and was actually inspired by a lot of the work that was being done in the US in Black and uh, Latino youth communities, as well as Indigenous youth communities in Canada. And collectively, we all share a very strong risk uh, for diabetes. Our rates are, you know, close to 25% uh, almost, uh, which is much higher than, you know, white and Caucasian um, populations who experience diabetes, you know, at around 11%. And knowing that now we're starting to see South Asians are being diagnosed with diabetes at much younger ages, it's being passed on from generation to generation. Uh, for me personally, also having a family history of diabetes, I think it was really timely and important that we start to work with the next generation and start to bring awareness 
to Asian youth who have a family history of diabetes and to understand their risk factor profile, but most importantly, ensure that they understand their risk factor profile is really rooted in these social inequities that uh, we experience uh, together. And that's a unique part of the Asian Adolescent Diabetes Awareness Program. So we rolled out, you know, a 10 week um, health promotion uh, intervention. So the youth, you know, did learn how to, you know, exercise and, and eat properly. Um, it was also very family centered, but a big part of our program again was this education and knowledge and awareness of the social determinants of diabetes. And one of the biggest um, outcomes of this project is that the youth uh, were very unaware that social factors, you know, such as precarious work, um, having low income, living in disadvantaged neighborhoods actually contributed to one's risk for having diabetes as these youth actually came in blaming themselves and their families mm -hmm. for having diabetes. And so this was a huge shift in their knowledge and they became very empowered uh, knowing uh, this information and started to you know, stop blaming themselves and, and our communities. And so based on this um, outcome, we realized we wanted to work with the youth more and the youth really wanted to learn more about social determinants of health. And so we started the second phase of the South Asian Adolescent Diabetes Awareness Program, which is called Beyond the Body, a Photo Voice um, Project. And so, um, I'm going to ask uh, Amina to, to share more about this project and also Shudi um, to also jump in and, and talk about the process of both of them um, really led the project along with their peers. Yeah, so the, the um, Beyond the Body Photo Voice project is really kind of like the second the second phase building off of the South Asian Adolescent Diabetes Awareness Program. And the whole point of that second project was to get these youth to start thinking about um, which factors beyond themselves, quite literally like the name, are impacting you know, their risk for diabetes or impact, have impacted um, their family members who have diabetes currently. And so honestly, from, from my perspective, it was something I'd like I'd never seen before. Um, I know when I was in high school, like around the age of the youth that we were working with, you know, these concepts of, of the social determinants of health, of health equity, of, you know, looking beyond um, our individual selves was really foreign to me. I only came to learn about that when I got into undergrad. And, and so part of that was really exciting, but also part of that was really challenging because we were trying to um, encourage a dialogue and a way of thinking that was really beyond something that's normal, right? Like it, mm -hmm. it took a while for us to really um, unpack some of those terms and understanding and also just kind of sitting down and taking a look at ourselves and recognizing, you know, your, your own privilege of your family background, whether some of the participants, you know, had come as immigrants themselves, or, you know, some of them were born here and like, their parents are born here and their grandparents are born here. And so all of those things, as we know, um, also impact impact our, our health outcomes, but also frame our thinking and they frame the way that we view others. And so it was this really interesting sort of unique space where there were so many um, 
differences amongst the participants. And so we were able to really kind of talk about those and challenge those together. But um, one of the uh, key sort of, you know, outcomes of this Beyond the Body project was we were doing um, a photo, a photo project. So a photo voice project, which is a qualitative research methodology that uses photography um, and storytelling about, you know, those photographs to unpack kind of difficult social concepts. And so in our situation, we were trying to use photography as a means to understand, um, you know, which, which factors in, the, in, in your environment are making it easy for you to be healthier, which factors in your envir environment are making it hard for you, and how does that impact your diabetes risk? Mm -hmm. um and sorry Leah I know I'm kind of like shooting off into maybe some of the like no of questions course. and I'm trying not to like yeah overstep but jump in if you want to like add and um ask any of the follow-up questions too of course so I, I wanted to ask you so why were visual narratives used at the virtual public exhibit and and what were you able to highlight through photographs of this imagery created yeah, so I think, um, you know, with with our generation or just the age that we live in, in general, like, we're all such visual people. I know for me, like, if I, if I see an image, I can take a lot more away from that than I can when I, you know, see a number. Um, and as we've kind of talked about, like, there's a lot of data out there on South Asian health specifically related to disease, chronic conditions. Um, but the complexity behind that data, the complexity behind those numbers is just really misunderstood. And so photographs are a really good way to communicate that. Um, like the saying of a picture is worth a thousand words is, mm -hmm. is you know, holding very yeah. true here because you're quite literally seeing health through the lens of the know, picture the or impacted, yeah, yeah. Of, of, of the use in the project. And so um, I think what also, they were able I think also adding on onto the imagery or the photograph, it, it brings back the human aspect of of research, which is so forgotten when you see numbers or statistics or just data. And so this project really brought back this this human aspect to, to at the end of the day say, uh, this is a problem in our community. These are lives. These are are basically that visual narrative was seen that image had that powerful mentally stimulating effect that research that is on a paper that is not applicable to those who are not in the field of research or public health scholars or or those in academia uh, you were able to touch another audience essentially yeah Leah, i love that you said that and i think that's that speaks so much to like the unique power of you know art um and um photography and and so being able to kind of merge those two realms together was was really cool because this is all informed by research and fact, right? But we're portraying mm -hmm. it through something that connects to people in a different way and connects to people on a much larger scale. Like my parents were able to, you know, see these photos and read the captions and connect with that information. Whereas reading a research paper with all of its intense, you know, jargon and language like sometimes it's hard for me to even understand and so mm -hmm. we're able to make it more accessible um but one of the major things that you know the youth were able to highlight through these photos was 
they were shedding light on those non-medical factors that are impacting their health. So what their experiences are like of living in the neighborhood that they live in or experiences of you know, immigration, of um, their school policies or like food insecurity that exists in their neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And so especially during the COVID-19 pandemic, the idea of digital storytelling has proven to be so powerful. Um, so my next question goes into what role does it have in our future world and maybe uh, in future research? I can start this one off. I think that, you know, prior to the pandemic, we were hoping to essentially do a live exhibit and um, you know, invite people to come look at these pictures, come read these captions in person. And then of course, because of the COVID pandemic, that was not possible anymore. And you know, we decided to shift this into a digital platform. And I think from our experience, there's a couple of things that were made automatically evident. And that was that you know, through digital storytelling, we were able to almost challenge ourselves in ways in which, you know, you don't really think of. And I think, you know, it's kind of that saying where when there is a problem presented to you, you always think about different solutions, which you might have overlooked if there didn't seem to be a challenge at all. And so it really gave us the opportunity to think about we can't have this exhibit live in person. What is another way to tell the story that we want to tell? And you know, we we dabbled with quite a few ideas. We had the idea about doing essentially what is a live exhibit, but on a virtual platform. But I think for our team, we wanted to go a little bit further than that because what we really felt that that would, you know, would be missing is that engagement piece of it. Um, I think the piece where you get to see the participants, you get to hear what they have to say. That's the piece that would be missing from an event that isn't in person, that doesn't feature all the youth. And you know, you wouldn't really be able to connect with that. And so I think when we thought about the idea of doing essentially a short film, um, I think it really challenged us to think about a different way to tell the story. Um, and it really challenged us to become really creative in how we want to tell this story, because what we're talking about here isn't necessarily new, but it is absolutely unique because it is every single participant's unique experience and being able to find a way to weave those experiences together to send a message home was something that, you know, we had to sit through and think through. And so I think you know, going digital in these ways, it kind of really opens up a world of possibilities because it really forces you to think outside the box. And I think with science and with research, I think one of the things kind of jumping off of Amina's point about having that marriage between the arts and the science and, and the research field, we see that so much research is simply not accessible to everybody. If you're not in a research community, you either don't have access to the work 
uh, or the research, or maybe you know you're reading through an article and you have no idea what it's saying. And uh, you know, like Amina, I read research articles all the time, and honestly, I don't even know what they're saying half the times. Like I'll have to read through it two or three times. So thinking about somebody who doesn't have this practice or doesn't have that accessibility, you're not really you know sending that message. You're not really reaching that audience. You're not reaching people that are outside of that community and so much of the change and so much of the you know advocacy piece happens outside of the academic bubble and so i think being able to take our our work to a digital platform to create a short film really opened up the chance to bring our participants into the process and to bring people from such a wide and interdisciplinary sector so you know we had folks from, from policy, from research, from the community. We had parents and friends, you know, all really coming together and generating a discussion, which was so powerful. And those were all things that wouldn't have happened had we maybe had something that was an event that might have not been as accessible, that might not have been as available, and that might not have as been, you know, as open. So I think we, you avoid a lot of the logistical challenges, but at the same time, you know, we really get that opportunity to become really innovative and creative and really reach a bigger audience and, 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 you know, leave your mark and, and, you know, just ensure that everyone is able to connect and engage with that material. Mm -hmm. And going back earlier, um, Shidi, you had highlighted the role that research plays, like sometimes research is conducted and individuals will go to a community, take research, conduct research, and then essentially leave. And the community has minimal to no effect on or guidance or knowledge on what has happened or what has led to the research outcomes of, of the research that was conducted. Mm -hmm. So moving to the next question, there was the mosque based physical activity intervention for South Asian Muslim women. Um, and when I came across the study, I found it so unique that it was a simple solution, creating a gym at the mosque to address the lack of physical in inactivity that was prevalent in, in Muslim women. So I was I was so fascinated and, and I have this, I wanted to ask you all the question, how have we not thought about this before? Um, it was such a simple solution and the research that that you guys have conducted, you are now able to go and assess and provide solutions to, to a problem that before we never thought about. I guess I can talk about this project. So this was actually one of the very first uh, projects um, that I had the opportunity to lead um, after I had completed my PhD. And I think this project really inspired me to move forward and under and to ensure that I work with the community side by side and that they really determine, you know, the research agenda and generate the ideas that work for them. And so um, I was a registered kinesiologist at Women's College Hospital and I used to work with a lot of women who've had diabetes and cardiovascular disease and, you know, provide exercise prescriptions and ensure that, you know, exercise became a part of their daily life. And throughout my practice, I, I did notice that a lot of racialized women, particularly, you know, from low-income communities who are in precarious work, did struggle quite a bit to um, have an, to stick to an exercise plan. 
um, that worked for them. And also what I started to notice, you know, there were women, um, South Asian women who self-identified as Muslim. And again, not all Muslim women, but there's a fair number of them that did disclose to me that they didn't feel comfortable exercising, you know, in public. Uh, and for some of them, they didn't even feel comfortable going for a walk uh, in the evenings and having the opportunity to really, you know, talk to them and understand, you know, why this is. And something that they told me, especially during this time, you know, with the rise of um, Islamophobia and, you know, just not feeling safe or protected, you know, in our Canadian system and, you know, wanting to have opportunities to engage in physical activity because they know it's important for their health. They want to do it uh, to help manage their diabetes and prevent their risks for cardiovascular disease. And so when I asked them, you know, what can be done, it was actually one of the women uh, that I that was one of my patients, you know, said, Ananya, would it be crazy if we bring, you know, an exercise program to the mosque? And, you know, I had asked, why would the mosque be the ideal and safe environment? And, you know, she had told me that, you know, we have, you know, space that is, you know, specific and only for women um, in the mosque and that, you know, they go to the mosque quite frequently throughout the week to pray, but they have a women's group where, you know, they engage a lot together. And so when she told me this idea and there was a funding opportunity that had come out to design such programs, I thought, why not? Let's see if this can work. And interesting enough, I saw that there were exercise programs in Black churches for Black women because often they experience a lot of discrimination in public settings and, you know, are constantly fear of, you know, um, of experience racism or, or being hurt in the public. And this is even when they go to the gyms or, you know, understanding when it, for many Muslim women, they can't exercise in gym, in facilities in the presence of men. And they had also disclosed that, you know, especially women who are part of low-income backgrounds had said they can't afford to go to women-only gyms. We know women-only gyms are very, you know, in the form of a boutique. Um, I think many of us, maybe myself, I can't even afford to go to a women's-only gym. And so, you know, this all coming together and really at that point, understanding this was really important for this you know, Muslim community living in downtown Toronto and understanding many of them had actually come from India as refugees, you know, as a result of the Gujarat riots um, in the 90s. Um, there was just so much going on and they just needed a space for themselves and, and to take care of themselves. And so we were fortunate enough to roll out an exercise program, um, taking the exercise model that we had at Women's College Hospital uh, and bring it to the community. And, you know, we hired, you know, South Asian exercise um, specialists, kinesiologists, physiotherapists, um, come together and run this program for a six month period. And what was incredible to see at the six month period, you know, we had over a hundred women who accessed this program, you know, majority of them coming three times a week. 
And we started to notice that, you know, they were meeting the physical activity guidelines. They were exercising 150 minutes per week. They were getting stronger. Some of them had reported that they lowered their blood pressure medication, their diabetes medication. And what was absolutely incredible was the support that we had from the mosque community, from the imam. Um, and, you know, the imam had come to me and told me that he noticed that women who were unable to pray on the mat, on the ground, um, you know, often had to pray sitting on a chair. And a lot of women had talked about that this often made them feel disconnected to the community or even disconnected during the prayer. And he noticed a substantial higher number of women were now able to pray on the ground. Um, and that was something that was probably, you know, the best outcome we could have seen is to enable women to just be more spiritually connected um, during prayer. And um, it was a really great program for six months. It is still running to this day. It's been five years. Mm -hmm. um, and a unique part and then a unique part of this program now is that um, the women who started participating in the exercise program are now the leaders and running the programs on their own and no longer have to bring in um, kinesiologists or any exercise specialists to run this program. And uh, also many of the women um, are now confident and feel they can uh, exercise outside the mosque so they're I think they brought the program down to once a week but they started down their, their own walking program and they've actually started to exercise in the community and they actually advocated for a space in their community center um, that was exclusive to women and uh, to ensure that all the windows um, were covered um, and uh, there are now exercise gurus I would say um, and you know it took time it was like it took us five years, you know, to get to the point where they were finally on their own and really just feeling empowered to mm -hmm. exercise as a community and overcome a lot of the barriers that they had faced. Um, and so that's the success of the program. And uh, there's actually been other mosques in the GTA area, um, across, across Canada, you know, where I've come to know that they've started an exercise program in their mosque and also in other places of worship across Canada and the US as well. Mm -hmm. And so, and then, yeah, this was one of the, the projects that I came across on the website and I was like, this is fantastic because this is exactly what um, we really need. We need research to go and drive solutions to individuals and communities that are facing problems. And this study so perfectly highlighted how, how we can basically change the dynamic and allow individuals to lead healthier and, and happier lives. Um, and I love the fact that the women were so empowered and felt spiritually connected. Um, and so I feel that is the impact from that project cannot be put into words, but it's it's, it's an amazing initiative. And so and what I sorry, just yes. to like add on to and I didn't have the pleasure of actually being a part of this mosque based study. Mm -hmm. um, at that time, I, I joined Sahar much later. But I think, you know, kind of just going back to your question of it's such a simple solution. Why didn't we think about it before? And I think that really goes to show, you know, what the power of community research actually means, because mm -hmm. if 
you know, you didn't go out and speak to the community, if you didn't, you know, consult with them, if you didn't think about what would work for them, then you would, you might not have been able to produce a program or an intervention that would actually be helpful and relevant and would work for them. And I think, you know, I'm so glad you asked that question because it made me think about the fact that, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's kind of interesting when you think about it that it, it wasn't something that was, you know, it should have been thought earlier, but mm -hmm. you know, if you didn't have that communication with the community, it wouldn't have been possible. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to definitely seeing what the community needs are, having them play a role in, in healthcare and medicine and in the way that we create and form policies. So that is definitely highlighted through this one intervention that was uh, led by this South Asian Health Research Hub. Um, but I wanted to ask, what are maybe future goals of this pilot study? Do we plan on maybe using this as a model to help out other individuals in similar, similar situations? I think, you know, unfortunately we had to stay at the pilot. I mean, Canada's known for the country of pilot studies and funding is often, you know, something that determines if determines if a program can be scalable or not. I, I think we were very fortunate enough to publish all the findings of the studies. And, you know, I think at this point, I, I would love to see, you know, more communities, mosque communities, you know, come together and, and run the programs that fits their needs. I would love to see if also there's support, you know, from the government for these programs as well. You know, I think, you know, there is such a step-by-step -step process to having a program as such. Um, but I think at this point, um, I feel like the work has been done and, you know, if anyone is interested in, in bringing an exercise program to their community, to their places of worship, you know, the South Asian Health Research Hub is always there um, to help, you know, provide support and, and the infrastructure if needed. Um, I don't think we need more studies to show this program is effective. I don't think we need more research. I think we've shown that. Um, yes. I think at this point, you know, we just hope that many people will take this model and, and bring it to their communities um, as they fit uh, is needed. And as I said, you know, there has been definitely a few places of worship that have um, brought this program and it, it's running successfully. And I think also the work that we did on the mosque, you know, it, it did have a role in, in, you know, understanding, particularly during this pandemic, you know, why faith-based institutions are so crucial, particularly for South Asian communities and really playing a strong role in health promotion. And, you know, it, it's nice to see, as I said, in Thornton Park, you know, there are mosques that are playing a very active role in making sure community members are being vaccinated. Um, we know there's actually a Hindu temple in Etobicoke that is planning to vaccinate almost 15,000 people who live in the Rexdale area, um, many who are South Asian and have been completely left behind in this pandemic. And so I think we're seeing the power of, again, as Shudi said, community-driven solutions uh, that really works for the community um, to really make sure that they're not falling behind uh, in any way. Mm -hmm. And so how is the South Asian Health Research Hub serving humanity, which is the mission statement of the PMED podcast? 
Um, this is such a loaded question and it's probably the hardest question you've asked today. Um, but I will say that I think, I think for the research we do and for the work that we do, not just research, but also all of the other pieces that's involved in our work, which includes you know, engaging our participants and, and ensuring their well-being or ensuring that we're here to support them at all times. I think the kind of value that we always hold at the center of this is compassion and empathy and, and respect. And, you know, I think that's really one of the pivotal pieces of the work that we do that Kind of feeds into those conversations around humanity where the purpose of the work we do it is in part to you know to share a message and to build on to evidence that currently exists but it's also to ensure that we're supporting our communities and to ensure that they are able to feel supported in the way they would like to be supported. And I think the fact that we center the needs, the wants, the decisions, the capacities, the positive assets that the community has. And I, I think that's really, you know, what kind of sets our work into, you know, into that sort of field of you know, working for a community and, and working for compassion and working for humanity, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts too, Avida and Anya. Yeah, I mean, as Shuji said, this is a very loaded question. I think um, something that I think a lot, something that we're also mindful of is that you know, South Asian Health Research Hub is, is not only for South Asian communities. I, I think, you know, something that we really hope to do and, and to also recognize that a lot of our work has been inspired, you know, by Black and Indigenous communities, you know, in Canada and in the U.S. And I think, you know, this shows, you know, how many parallels there are between all of us, you know, who are part of racialized communities and, you know, the inequities that we experience and that we're also just tired of, you know, having people tell us what to do and what we ought to do and should do. And, you know, I think this is a time more than ever that, you know, we are rising as communities who are racialized and who are disadvantaged and, and really coming together and, and really pushing for change that begins with us as opposed to telling people that we need to change. And I think I, I really do wanna acknowledge, you know, all the black and indigenous scholars such as Eve Tuck, Kimberly Crenshaw, you know, who talk about the importance of intersectionality, talk about the importance of being over researched and why that you know is more harmful than good for racialized communities um, at the same time we honor our you know differences in our histories of oppression and something that we're very mindful you know as south asians you know we're part of this hub is that we really try to be strong accomplices or allies as many people call it you know to work alongside other racialized communities you know who are so much more historically disadvantaged than us. And um, we're hoping in the future, you know, we can continue to build on, 
you know, really serving humanity, not just for our communities, um, but for everyone, right, uh, mm -hmm. who experiences, you know, uh, historical and ongoing forms of oppression and systemic racism and the importance that, you know, we have to, we will all rise together and support um, in each other and it's really difficult, you know, often it's emotional labor for us when we uh, do this work, but I, I, I am very hopeful and I think, you know, growing up when I was um, you know, pursuing grad school. Like I said, I didn't have anyone look like me. I I didn't have opportunities like this when I was doing my master's. And I think, you know, having this experience to work alongside with, you know, Shudi and Mina and so many others I want to name, Avantika, Nizha, you know, Nusheen. Um, there's so many, Harsh. I, you know, it's incredible how we've all come together and and formed this community among ourselves to really advance the health needs of our communities from a social justice um, and equity perspective. Mm -hmm. I definitely agree with both of you, Shidi and, and Anania, how, how wonderfully you've highlighted how the work of the South Asian Health Research Hub is going to be serving humanity and does serve humanity. And it has the potential of inspiring future research for inspiring others across Canada and abroad. So I definitely think um, it's such a wonderful initiative, such a, a, a wonderful and amazing uh, research hub that, that is there and, and will go on to leave a, a legacy. Um, but before I let you all leave, I wanted to ask, what are some accomplishments of the South Asian Health Research Hub? I can start and then shooting the way that you can um, definitely um, chime in. I think I think one of the biggest accomplishments that I see in this hub is, I mean, for me personally, is obviously working with such an incredible group of young um, South Asian, you know, public health scholars. I, I think um, the public health students that are part of this hub and now are professionals, you know, have, have had the opportunity to really work with you know, young South Asians who are in high school. And, you know, we're we're constantly trying to like pay it forward um, and, and really make sure that, you know, this work doesn't stop in the coming uh, generations and understanding, you know, how it's important for us to be so grounded in equity and social justice. And, you know, I have to thank, you know, all the different funders that have supported the South Asian Health Research Hub and this includes the Lawson Foundation, um, the Social Science and Humanities Research Council, um, which is part of, you know, the Canadian federal government. Um, you know, without their funding, like the South Asian Health Research Hub to date has reached, has received over a half a million dollars in funding. And, you know, this has enabled us to do the work that we're doing, but most importantly, to do this work thoughtfully with time, with patience, to be able to make mistakes, to learn. I, I think that has been a huge part of the South Asian Health Research Hub. At the same time, we've made incredible connections um, with uh, communities, um, you know, for example, Indus Community Health Center, Punjabi Community Health Centers, um, you know, the mosques, um, so many, you know, different groups and organizations uh, I can think of that, you know, have really played a strong role in shaping, you know, the hub towards today. We've had a lot of support also from Diabetes Canada, Diabetes Action Canada. I mean, 
I can just continue to name and name and name. Um, and we're just very fortunate to have people believe in our work and believe um, in us. And, and so, and, you know, again, for me at the end, it's to just, again, to just mentor and guide and, and enable, you know, Shudi and Nina and their peers to lead these projects. Um, that's probably the most fulfilling experience for me. Mm -hmm. Definitely, it's, this is such wonderful um, hearing about all these amazing collaborations and, and networks and grants and how much has been achieved by the organization as a whole. Um, but what's next? Are there any exciting plans? Are there any upcoming events? And where can listeners follow the South Asian Health Research Hub? How can they get involved with the organization, for example? Um, so at this point, we are wrapping up um, the South Asian Adolescent Diabetes Awareness Program and among a few other projects. So we're all right now in the writing stage. And so we're hoping to get uh, all our findings published in you know, academic journals. Um, we've been fortunate to share our work through the media, uh, who's also supported our um, the findings and, and you know, sharing them with you know, the general public. And so that's where we're at now. Um, the goal is for Sahar Next is to um, roll out the South Asian Adolescent Diabetes Awareness Program across Canada. So we have received interest from, you know, Quebec, Calgary, um, sorry, Alberta and BC um, from various South Asian communities and primary healthcare sites to uh, roll out SAT up there. So we're working towards getting funding uh, and just making sure that more and more people have the opportunity to access at this program. Um, and, you know, I think we just play it by ear and we see what's to come and what's really needed by the community and, and, and really be able to like be a mechanism and, and really support the needs of our communities and, and what matters to them um, right now. So uh, stay tuned. Uh, you can definitely check out our website and you can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter uh, for more updates on, on what's to come. I'd like to take this time to thank the three of you, Ananya, Shidi, and Amina for coming on to the Pyramid podcast, for sharing your perspectives, your insights, for raising awareness and for shedding light on uh, the amazing work that Sahar, the South Asian Health Research Hub does, and for um, making this such a wonderful conversation and, and highlighting the different disparities and ways that we as a community can really help and tackle these issues that are existent. So thank, thank you, you so, so much, Leah, for having us. Thank you so much, yeah, Leah, you. for your time. Thank you for listening to the Pyramid Podcast. It means the world to have a supportive audience from 25 plus countries and counting. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to stay updated. Feel free to share it with friends and family members. And more importantly, please follow the South Asian Health Research Hub. They're always working on different health promotion initiatives to bring about individual health behavioral changes, as well as awareness of societal influences on health. For further information, follow us on social media or email us at pyramidfoundation at gmail.com. We here at Pyramid are excited to bring you new content, stories, and conversations, week in and week out. We cannot wait to see our new and familiar faces here back each episode. Thank you for tuning in. Stay safe, stay healthy.